0: I want to give you a chance to uh, get, get one of those. If you just raise your hand right now, one of our ushers will uh, get one of those to you. It will be very, very helpful for you this morning to get that. So just get your hand up long enough for them to see you, and we'll do that. Okay, very good. Now, we've been working our way through the seven letters that our Lord wrote to seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, Some of you folks who have been here uh, for our study of church history a few years ago and you've been working with us all the way through this expository series through the book of uh, Revelation, you know very well the the context of this, but I want you to just think right now in terms of somebody that's coming into this service for the very first time. There's some basic things that we need to make sure that they understand so we can all be on the same page this morning. And if you're a guest with us today, I want you to know that the Bible is the most incredible commodity that is on the face of this globe. It is nothing short of a supernatural book. And we believe that wholeheartedly. It's not like, yeah, we want it to be, and so, yeah, 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 it's real supernatural. No, I mean, all you got to do is just let the Bible do its thing. And what it does is shows you the supernatural quality of this thing. And one of the things that God only in his wisdom could do is he took seven letters in these two chapters of the book of Revelation. And in those two chapters, not only addressed specific needs that were taking place in those seven churches that were located in Asia Minor around 95 A.D. when John wrote this letter, or wrote the book, But what the Lord did in dictating those seven letters is he was spelling out for us seven periods of church history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off in the historical record, and it brings us all the way up to the rapture of the church. And what we have defined for us is God's interpretation of history. And in each one of these letters, they're all coming to a specific church, and what we have found is that each one of these churches, by their very name, what God is doing is He is giving you a one-word capsulization of what was going on in that period of church history. And we're not going to take the time to go through all of them, but we made our way to the sixth period of church history. It was a period of time written to the Philadelphian church. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And what was taking place on this planet historically at that period of time was like at no other time in the world, Christians were loving their fellow man like at no other time because what they were doing is not just doing nice little humanitarian deeds. What they were doing is they were taking this book to the ends of the earth. And showing them the greatest love story that man has ever known. The fact that God became flesh and came to this planet. And people all over this world were being born into the family of God. It was the greatest time of missions. It was the greatest revivals. It was when the power of God was unleashed like at no other time. And man, we were coming through that Philadelphia period and just praising the Lord for all the things that were going on in that period but we had to look at that in light of the next letter the seventh period of church history now the philadelphian period covered the years approximately from 1500 to 1900 the last period the period written to the church at laodicea it is a period of of time that picked up around 1900 and will take us all the way up to the rapture which could be before this service is even over i mean it is that imminent That's what we're expecting based on the historical record that God has laid out for us. But when you begin to go to that church at Laodicea, what you begin to find is that God does not have one single word to commend that church for. And we've always heard all of our life, hey, if you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. Well, God didn't apply that when it comes to the church at Laodicea. Because all he does is say one negative thing after another talking about this period of time on this planet he calls it the church of the closed door jesus you'll see in revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is standing on the outside of his church knocking while all the people on the inside having a big a big doings in his name celebrating his presence on the inside and he's on the outside jesus writes and he says it makes him want to puke He says, it makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. And that's the period of time that we're living in. And so what we've done is we've been looking and and saying, is that all there is? I mean, is that all that we can expect? We're living in the layout of c and so is that our plight? Is that all that we can, can really hope for in life is to be sickening to God? And so what we did is we've gone back to the letter that was written to the church at Philadelphia. And we've tried to see what was it about that church? What was it about that period of time as God looked into it? What was it that caused God to say, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to open the doors for them. I'm going to unleash my power upon them. What was it that was taking place? And so what we've been able to see is that there are five factors that, that God lays out for us. Five things that can help us, those of us that are living in this layout of sea and age, Five things that need to take place in us if we're ever going to know a Philadelphian kind of life. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is the power of God on our life. God opening doors for us for ministry and and reaching people with the gospel for us to fulfill the purpose that God created the church because the church at Laodicea just does not do that. And so we've been working our way through it. We don't have time to do a long review today. But basically, the first factor that we looked at is something has to change about the Christ that we know in Laodicea because he's not the same Christ that the Philadelphian church period knew. The one that they knew was one that was holy. And you see, Laodiceans don't know a holy Lord Jesus Christ. They know a buddy-buddy type of Jesus that they like to 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 slam beers with and, and all that kind of mentality. Our... our our view of Christ in the layout of sea and age is far too low, and we 're talking in, the, in this point in how he presents himself in verse seven of Revelation chapter three that something needs to change with our perception, how we view the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get back to this book and begin to see him in the fullness of all of his holiness in his glory and splendor and majesty, but he presents himself as he which is holy, he which is true. And he which has the key of David. And that's the Christ that we need to know. And next we talked about the power of God being unleashed on those Philadelphians because of the life that they lived. And if something's going to change, if we're going to move out of Laodicea and and know a Philadelphian kind of life, something's going to have to change about the life we live. And we began to look at the things that he detailed for us. And then last week, we started looking at the promises that we hold. Something has to change there. There are certain promises that God was giving to the Philadelphian church period. And if we're going to get out of Laodicea, we've got to position our lives and know the Christ that is going to allow us to claim the same promises that they claimed. The fact that He will set before us open doors. He says in verse 3, Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. And that's the promise that we're looking for. He says next in verse 9, behold i will make them of the synagogue of satan which say they are jews and are not but do lie behold i make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that i have loved thee and we talked about that second promise that he will grant vindication over our opposers there is a group of people that are on this planet in fact they are almost one billion strong this morning that make up the synagogue of satan i don't even want to say who they are this morning lest uh, because we don't have time to to develop it but there's one billion of them on this planet this morning that God calls the synagogue of Satan and what he is saying, the promise that is given to Philadelphians is those very people trapped in that system will have the opportunity of them bowing at our feet, not to worship us, bowing at our feet because we've got an open Bible, being able to witness to them and see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That's the vindication that we're looking for. And then there's a third promise, and this is where we'll pick up this morning. And that is, that he will provide deliverance in turbulent times. That he will provide deliverance in turbulent times. Our Lord promises in verse 10, look at it if you would, verse 10 of Revelation 3. He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, and several weeks ago I explained why He refers to his word with that terminology. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know exactly what event that he's talking about here. He is talking about in this hour of tribulation, he is talking about the seven-year tribulation period, the, the, the final week of, of, San, uh, of Daniel's 70 weeks, the vision that he had there. This is the time referred to in Scripture as the time of Jacob's trouble. That is the hour of temptation or tribulation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, when it comes to the the whole subject of the tribulation period, there's all kinds of stuff that's being preached today. There are those that teach that you know the church is going to go through the first half of the tribulation, and and some teach that the church is going to go through all of it, and there are those who teach that the church is going to be be raptured in the mid tribulation. And now there's a new teaching that's come around in about the last decade or so. Uh, that has got a, a great groundswell among fundamentalists, people just like us, Bible believers. It's called the the pre-wrath rapture. The church is going to be rapt, raptured before the wrath of God in the tribulation period. And, and there's a lot of people teaching that. And then there are those who teach the truth. And that is that the church is going to be raptured off of this planet prior to. The, tri- the tribulation period and are not going to experience not even 2 seconds of it. You say well you know I know our church believes that but but why? I mean with all of these people with all these varying opinions about this how can we be totally sure what is the biblical basis that we have that the church is not going to experience any portion of the tribulation period? Well let me give you quickly four proofs That prove a pre-tribulation rapture, and the first proof is right here in Revelation chapter three in verse ten, and it's this: because the church is kept from the hour of temptation. What he says is the church will be kept from the hour of temptation. Look again at verse ten. He said, "I'll I'll I'll keep thee." Now watch this now: not from the the temptation, but from what? The hour. Of temptation. Now, now you see, you could be kept, now, now think, you, you could be kept from tribulation without a pre-tribulation rapture. Hey, I, I'll, I'll give you. It's the last three and a half years when the wrath of God is unleashed, and that's the, the period of time that jesus identified for us in matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 as the great tribulation and jesus described it this this way that it will be a time such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be so i'll give you you could be kept from tribulation without a pre-tribulation rapture because it's the last three and a half years where the wrath of god is unleashed and it's a seven-year period but How can you be kept from the hour of temptation without being raptured first? And you see, that's what Jesus promises in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. In other words, the time, the time period. Hour is a time period. I'll keep you from that hour. Now that's proof number one. Proof number two is because the church is not found in the book of Revelation in any part of the tribulation and this is man this is this is so important in in second timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 god said this he said study to show thyself approved unto god a workman that needeth not to be ashamed now listen to this part rightly dividing the word of truth now listen very carefully if you're newer to the bible this book, according to what God said in 2 Timothy 2.15, this book is a book that must be divided. There's some divisions in it. And unless you, listen to this, unless you rightly divide it, according to 2 Timothy 2.15, you're going to end up being ashamed. You say, well, boy, that's convenient. You can just start making divisions in that book anywhere you want to make them. Make it say anything you want to say. No, no. need to understand God made the divisions they're in there but you gotta study in order to find the divisions that God made it's not up to to us to say well I think it ought to be divided right here and I think because if you divide it right here it makes it it say this no the only way you're gonna find it God divided it the only way you'll find it is being a workman you become a workman and you study that thing and if you give that kind of study and if you give that kinda work to the book of Revelation What you'll find is that God very clearly divides this thing. And what you'll find is that the way God divides this thing is by heaven opening. Heaven opens two times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. In Revelation 19.11, heaven opens and somebody comes down. Okay, now somebody going up... Is the rapture? I mean, it's just as clear as a bell. You can look at it right there. Revelation 4:1. John, who we've already seen in this, in an earlier study uh, of this book, John, who is a picture of the church. Listen to this. He hears a voice, a trumpet, and is caught up into heaven. Come up hither, and you know what it is. It is First Thessalonians chapter four and verse sixteen. It says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, heaven opens, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It's the rapture of the church, Revelation 4.1. Somebody coming down in Revelation 19.11, there's no question about that. I mean, that's the second coming of Christ. John says in Revelation 19.11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And verse 14 of Revelation 19 says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And of course, that's the church at the second coming of Christ as it opens, coming back down to the earth. So now watch this. Revelation four one is where the rapture takes place in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.11 is where the second coming takes place. Now, once you have set those two things in this book, I'm telling you, the book is a cakewalk. What that means, and you see those divisions there, they have divided the book into three basic sections. Okay, Revelation chapter 1 through 3, if the rapture is at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, then chapters 1 through 3 are the church age. Chapter 4 is the rapture. Chapters 5 through 18 is the tribulation period. And what God does in chapters 5 through 18 is he brings you four times through the tribulation period. And then in chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, chapter 20, the millennium, chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, and chapter 22, eternity. Okay? Now, Now, check this out. That's the way the book is divided according to how God laid the thing out. But now, watch this. In the first three chapters, where God brings you through the church age, the word church is found in those three chapters 19 times. The rapture takes place in chapter 4 and verse 1. And now listen. After that, you don't see the church in fact, the word "church" does not appear, not even one time, through the entire book of Revelation, through all the way through the four accounts of the tribulation period in chapters five through 18. Listen, it's not there. I mean, it, it, something has just got to go off in you is that 19 times during that, that first three chapters you got the church, the rapture takes place, and there's not another mention of the church all the way through the four times of the tribulation period you don't see the church again until it comes out of heaven that's why i showed you revelation 1914 those armies that came out of heaven because that's where they've been during that seven-year period of tribulation you see the only way that you can get the church in any part of the tribulation is to wrongly Divide the book of Revelation. So that's the second proof. Proof number three. Proof number three is because the church is not found in the book of 1 Thessalonians in any part of the tribulation period. And I want you to turn back there, if you will, 1 Thessalonians. And you see, now this is really significant because the two New Testament books that give us our our understanding and our doctrine of the tribulation period are the book of Revelation and the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay, So if we're going to know something about the tribulation period, this is where we've got to go in the New Testament to get our doctrine. And we've already looked at what Revelation lays out for us. Clear as a bell. I mean, you'd, you'd have to go in there and start manipulating something to, to try to force the church into the tribulation period. Now, we, we mentioned just a minute ago that, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is what gives us our doctrine concerning the rapture of the church. And Paul goes into detail explaining that for us in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. And then look at what he says as he begins chapter 5. He says, But, but, a a term of contrast and, and a term of connection, but... Of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, verse 2, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now folks, that is not, I know the movie was titled A Thief in the Night. It is not talking about the rapture of the church. Rapture of the church was in chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. He's talking here about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord picks up as soon as the rapture has taken place. It includes the tribulation period and all the way through the millennium. That's the day of the Lord. This isn't the rapture. He's talking here about what takes place after the rapture of the church. You see, that's why verse 1 begins with the word, but, that term of contrast. He's just finished the teaching concerning the rapture, but, he says... Now let me give you the details of what takes place after that. And I want you to watch the pronouns that he uses here. Uh, Look in verse 3. Now he's talking about the tribulation period, the beginning of the day of the Lord, that takes place immediately after the rapture. Now watch verse 3. "...for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child." and they shall not escape. Now, why, why will they say peace and safety and destruction come upon them, and they shall not escape? You know why? Because we're gone. Verse 4, But ye, brethren, but ye, now they, them, that, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief ye are all the children of light and the children of the day we are not of the night nor of the darkness you see the church has been removed back in chapter 4 at the rapture prior to the beginning of the tribulation and that's proof number 3 and then proof number 4 is just the simple fact that the church is looking for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ not the Antichrist you see anything but a pre-tribulation rapture has got you looking and anticipating the wrong Christ do you see that Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 says looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ not The Antichrist, and you see, if we go through any part of the tribulation, what you've got us doing is you've got us looking for the Antichrist to come on the scene. That's not what we're looking for this morning. Listen, we are not going to go through any part of the reign of Antichrist. The first time the church sees the face of the Antichrist, it's going to be under the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back to this planet at the second coming of Christ because we're not going to be in any part whatsoever of the tribulation period. And look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 again. Revelation chapter 3 verse, verse 10. It's just like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 watch the pronouns he uses he says I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth and the reason he says them that dwell upon the earth is because we won't we won't be dwelling on the earth at that period of time we'll be in heaven with him and I'll tell you that, to me, is quite an, an assuring promise that we will be delivered from turbulent times. We're, we're not, we're not, you know, sitting here going, "Oh my goodness, now when the Antichrist comes and," hey, no, we won't have to worry about that. Not even for a split second. We will be gone. But I think there's an even more practical application of the promise for the life that we're presently living on the earth. Now, that's 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 great that we. We can anticipate that kind of a thing, that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and deliver us from turbulent times. But what about now? And you remember the the promise that we we looked at first is the fact that, that God, if we're living a Philadelphian life, what God's going to do is He's going to open doors for us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, why don't you just go back there real quick, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We looked at this last week. Paul is talking about all the places that he intends to go, but he's all the way through this thing, talking about if the Lord will, and I might do this, and I might do this, because he knows that the way that God is going to direct him in ministry, if it's going to be effective at all, it's going to be through open doors. But you need to understand something. Any time that God opens doors, there are going to be adversaries. Look at what he says in verse 9. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me. What's the next word? And there are many adversaries. Not, Not but there are many adversaries. And there are many adversaries. Those two things just absolutely go together. Open doors and adversaries. You can just... You can just bank on it. They're going to come together. But he gives to us in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He gives us the promise of deliverance. But but let me make sure that you understand what that deliverance may mean. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And look at verse 4. Paul is writing this coming down to the end of his life. He was in a prison in Rome. He's writing the last words that he would ever write, and he's writing them to his beloved son in the ministry, Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and, and verse 16, At my first answer, no man stood with me. Now he's talking about the first time that he appeared in that Roman court. Being tried for the gospel and preaching the gospel. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. I mean, if you want to call in somebody in court to be a witness for you, that's a pretty good one right there. Okay, all, all men, they forsook me. I couldn't count on them, but boy, I can count on God. He, he stuck with me. And he strengthened me. And by me, the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And that's not a lion with, with four legs and, and all of that. This is a, a lion that goeth about over the whole earth, seeking whom he may devour. This is, this is Satan. And now watch verse 18. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what he's doing? He's claiming the promise of deliverance. But now I want you to listen. Look, look. He's writing verse 18 knowing that he is about to get his head chopped off. Go figure. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. Look back at verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered. You know what that is? As a sacrifice. I know I'm getting ready to croak. I know they're getting ready to chop my head off. The time of my departure is at hand. But you know what he's saying down in verse 18? He's saying, you know what? They can cut off my head. They can martyr me. They can do anything that they want to do to this body, but they can't do anything to me. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, what's the worst thing that they could do to you? Kill you? Oh, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Because, you you see, you only die once. The the Scripture says that we died the day we got saved when the Spirit baptized us into Christ's death. And, buddy, you know what? If you kill me, all you do is deliver me from this body of death that I've been seeking ever since the day I got saved to try to mortify this thing. So, uh, I mean, oh, listen, do anything but, but don't kill me. won't do anything but that because all that will do is just deliver me into the presence of the one that I've wanted to be with all of my life. You see what he's saying? Hey, they may cut off my head, but I'm going to be delivered and I'm going to be preserved blameless. You see, we have the promise of deliverance in turbulent times. But now listen, the only ones who will ever possess that promise is the one with the spirit of Philadelphia, one who is living a new Philadelphian kind of existence. Those are the people who walk on this planet, not afraid about what men say, not afraid about what men might do. Those are the ones that are going through this world with confidence, saying, you know what? The worst thing that can happen to me is you kill me, and I go to be with Jesus. So the Bible says, you see, that's the spirit of the the Philadelphian church, period. Okay, and now the fourth factor. The Christ we know, the the life we live, the promises we hold, and now the fourth factor, the rewards we pursue. The rewards we pursue. And and this has to do with the motivation of those in the Philadelphian church period. In in verse 12, our, our Lord in verse 12 promises four different rewards to philadelphian overcomers look at what he says in verse 12 him that overcometh and lest there be anybody in here that might think that being an overcomer has something to do with you earning or deserving or working for your salvation a very key cross-reference here is is 1 john chapter 5 and verse 4 because it tells you exactly who an overcomer is 1 john 5 4 says for whatsoever is born of god overcometh the world, And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Listen, overcomers are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and have thereby been born into God's family, or as Jesus put it in John chapter 3 and verse 3, born again. And to those born again overcomers in the Philadelphian church period, he writes... Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. And listen, if we're ever going to be anything other than of than Laodiceans, helpless, hopeless, dead, dried up. If we're ever going to know anything but that, and if we're ever going to know what it is to live a Philadelphian kind of life, the rewards that our Lord lists in verse 12 are the rewards that we must be in pursuit of. And you'll notice, if you look at verse 12 once again, you'll notice just by a casual glance that it's going to be real difficult for a Laodicean to ever really anticipate and and live in pursuit of those kind of rewards because you'll notice all of those rewards that he's talking about in verse 12 have to do with something after this life and you see Laodiceans have a real hard time getting eternity in view we have a real hard time making investments spiritually that pay eternal dividends we have a hard time focusing on being rewarded for something over there. We want the reward now. We want the esteem now. You see, our self-motivation that is so characteristic of Laodiceans, because Jesus said in the last days, perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And you see, our self-focus and our self-motivation makes us want everything now. We want to have a quick return on all of our investments. If we do something in the church, we want the reward now. We want somebody to pat us on the back. We want somebody to applaud us now. We want the results now. Look at what he says. Look at the first reward, and I'll show you what I mean. The first reward is to be a pillar in God's temple now that would be nice wouldn't it to be a pillar in god's temple but but you see uh, a lay of seeing would much rather be be set by his pastors and and the people of his church as a pillar in the assembly see we, we want we want our standing now we want everybody in the church to think that we're we're all that in a bag of chips spiritually, and so we'll go through, you know, all kinds of things, and and we'll we'll press all of the, the 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 right buttons in in our church, and we'll jump through all of the the right hoops in order to achieve some standing in the church, some position in the church for our glory, rather than being focused on what God wants us to become for His glory, so that in eternity we can be positioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as a pillar in the very temple of God. And you know what? If you focus your life on that, you know what? Chances may be, in a in church period, it may be that you never get any recognition in your church. It may mean that you get overlooked for every position that they're seeking to fill. But you see, if we're going to be a Philadelphian, we get our eyes off of the rewards now and we start getting focused on something down the way. The first thing, to be a pillar in God's temple. Now, what what does he mean by that? He says, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, first of all, note the fact that there are three major symbols in this letter to Philadelphia. A key, a door... And now a a pillar. The key, we saw, represents Christ's authority. You remember that? The key of David that unlocks the doors to the world. It represents Christ's authority. The door, we saw, represents the church's opportunity. The opportunity to share the gospel. And the pillar represents the Christian's security you you folks that are up in the balcony this morning you know you're you're sitting up there and you're all secure up there in that balcony but if i told you that in about 30 seconds these these pillars that are holding that thing up are going to be taken out you know what there would be a a mass exodus toward those doors about right now because you see it, it is those pillars at what that's what gives you the security to stay up there where you're staying. I'm just telling you, I ain't going up in that balcony. You take those things out. It ain't going to happen. And as you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, with this thing of, of the pillars, what you begin to find out is that pillars played a very important role in Israel's tabernacle and Israel's temple. Okay, and he says, I'm going to make you a, a pillar in the temple of my God. Now we don't have time to go through all the references there but according to 1 kings chapter 7 verses 13 through 22 there were two pillars at the door of Solomon's temple now check these these pillars out if you go back to 1 kings chapter 7 and read about it what you'll find is each one of them was made of solid brass and was approximately 35 feet tall and 5 feet wide i mean just i mean can you imagine Solid brass, something of that magnitude, would be absolutely incredible. And 1 Kings 7 said that each one of the pillars had a name. I mean, have you ever checked that thing out? I mean, these pillars back there at the temple, the pillars got names. Okay, the one on the right hand, the right pillar is named Jachin, and the one on the left was named Boaz. Jachin means he will establish. And you'll remember from our study of the book of Ruth... That the name Boaz means he in whom there is strength. Jacob, he will establish Boaz, he in whom there is strength. Do you see the stability of that? Do you see the security of that? And you see, listen now, that's the reward that is promised to Philadelphians is that he will make us like Jacob and Boaz But not in an earthly temple. We will be pillars in the heavenly temple of God that remain established, that remain strong, that remain secure right on into eternity long after the earthly kingdom has crumbled and has totally been annihilated by fire. And I'll tell you what, to be a pillar in that temple and to have the name Jacob and boaz written on you that would be something that would be just absolutely incredible but it's even better than that jesus says in verse 12 i'll write on you not the name of jacob and boaz now those are real cool names he in whom there is strength he will establish strong but he says oh those names are nothing compared to the name i'm going to write on you i'll write on you the name of my god and that's the second reward we're to be in pursuit of, to have our Father's name written upon us. And as Pastor Frank was bringing us through the, the study of the book of Joshua, one of the things that he kept hammering that was just so, so beautiful, when you really grab a hold of the fact that what God has always been looking for is a place to put His name, as Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5 says, a place... For His name to dwell, Deuteronomy 12.11 says. Uh, a place to place His name, as Deuteronomy 14.23 says. A place to set His name, as Deuteronomy 14.24 says. And check out the reward given to Philadelphian believers. And oh, may this, may this be true of us. We become, now watch this, we become a pillar in God's temple, and we become the final place where God's name is put, where God's name is set, where God's name is placed, where God's name dwells for all eternity. I mean, can you imagine that? He's been looking all along for a place to put, to set, to place, for His name to dwell. And He promises to Philadelphian believers, I'll make you a pillar and I'm going to write on you the name of God Himself. He wants to set that name and you'll be that final resting place for His name. We have our Father's name written upon us. I mean, wow! To me now, that's, that's something to live for. That's something to get our eyes off of this stupid lay out of sea in church game and all of that. And let's get focused on something that is going to last. But not only that, the third reward we pursue is to have our mother's name written upon us. Say what? Have your mother's name written upon you. Your mom. Not your physical birth mother, but your spiritual birth mother. He he says in the middle of verse 12, And I'll write upon you the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. You say, well, it doesn't say anything about the name of our mother written upon us there. It says the city of God will be written upon us the name New Jerusalem. And and I realize that, but you need to understand what God tells us New Jerusalem is over in the book of Galatians chapter 4. In verse 26, New Jerusalem is our mother. And I want you to go back there, if you would. Let me show you this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 26 says, But Jerusalem which above is free, which is the mother of us all. You you say, well, how is New Jerusalem my mother? Well, you'll remember that The book of Galatians was written because a group of false teachers called Judaizers had infiltrated the churches of Galatia. And what these false teachers were saying is that it wasn't enough for Gentiles to be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in addition to being born again, what they had to do is they had to become Jewish, and they had to carry out the laws that were given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And you see, this would have been the mentality in the early days of Christianity. They thought for the Jews, and initially it would have been, but they thought that if a Gentile would come into this thing, yes, they had to be born again just like they did, but they also had to become Jewish. Okay, and these were these Judaizers. And the whole book of Galatians is written to address that particular subject. And in Galatians chapter 4, in verse 21, Paul writes... Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, okay? You Judaizers, you one, you you people who are trying to put these people under the law, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, but they had two different mamas, okay? The one by a bondmaid. Anybody remember what her name was? Talk to me, Hagar, okay? the other by a free woman, and what was her name? Sarah, okay? And of course, you remember the story. God had promised a son to Abraham. But man, years and years and years went on before, you know, they saw the promise of this thing. I mean, they're going through this thing, and year after year, there's no kid, and they're getting older and older, and Abraham gets to where he's about 90 and 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 Sarah, she's almost 80 at this point and there's still no kid. And so Sarah backs up from this thing and says, well, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, God needs some fleshly human ingenuity to pull this thing off. And so what she does is she orchestrates a, a sinful, horrendous thing of Abraham having a, a, a sexual relation with Sarah's bondmaid, her, her slave, her, her, her servant. And as a result of this thing, a son is born, and his name was Ishmael. Okay, But then a short time later, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, God fulfilled his promise, and he gave Abraham and Sarah a son, and of course his name was Isaac. Okay, And that's why verse 23 says, But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. That was a fleshly thing. That wasn't the work of God. That was the work of the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. In other words, the conception of Ishmael represents man's way, the way of the flesh, while the conception of Isaac represents God's way the way of promise, verse 24, which things are an allegory. In other words, God was teaching a major lesson through this whole historical thing that was going on, for these, that is the conception of these two women, are the two covenants. Okay, Hagar and the son of her conception, Ishmael, represent the covenant of law the covenant of works while sarah and the son of her conception isaac represent the covenant of grace and faith you see that's what verse 24 through 28 are all about go on in verse 24 the one that is the covenant from the mount sinai and of course that was the old covenant of law that was given through moses at mount sinai "...which gendereth to bondage, which is agar." Which, and agar is, it's hagar. That's just the Greek rendering of that word. Verse 25. "...for this hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem which now is." That's the earthly Jerusalem. The fleshly Jerusalem. "...and is in bondage with her children." In other words, the covenant of law required the Jews to keep all kinds of of, of commands that they were incapable of of, of keeping. And as a result, what that law did is it made them religious slaves. It put them in bondage, the law. It, it, It held them in bondage. And anyone, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, who tries to satisfy God and tries to gain Freedom from condemnation by trying to live up to that covenant in his own self-righteousness is spiritually like a child of Hagar. You're a slave. You're trying to do it in the flesh. You're trying to do it in your own works. You're a slave. You're identified with the earthly, fleshly city of Jerusalem where that old covenant was upheld. The spiritual descendants of Sarah On the other hand, those of us who are connected to the other covenant, those of us who live by faith in God's gracious promise given to Abraham and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, verse 26, are identified with the Jerusalem which is above and are free. You see, we've we've been freed from the law. We've been freed from from our sin and we're identified with the new Jerusalem we're no longer in bondage because she new Jerusalem is the mother of us all in other words verse 28 now we brethren as Isaac was are the children of promise verse 31 so then brethren we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free. You see that? And and Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, go back now, He says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12, that the reward for living a Philadelphian life is we stand in eternity as a pillar in God's temple, not with the name of Jacob and Boaz written upon us, but with the name of our Father set upon us. And the name of our Mother written upon us as a constant reminder through all eternity. That is, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 says that it was not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and receiving of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified, listen to it, that being justified by His grace. That's the covenant of Sarah. That's the covenant of the New Jerusalem, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs together of the hope of eternal life and we go through eternal life as a pillar in the temple of God with the name of God the Father on us and the name of our mother wow and I love what Jesus says at the end of verse 12 (laughs) look at it and I'll write upon you my new name my new name and that's the fourth reward we should pursue to have the new name of the Lord Jesus Christ written upon us. To have the new name of the Lord Jesus Christ written upon us. You say, well, what is that new name? Never heard of that before. Me neither. And I don't know what it is. Because the scripture is silent on it. You say, well, what does it mean? Well, Well, go over to Revelation chapter 21 and in revelation 21 as i already told you as we were rightly dividing the word of truth a few minutes ago revelation 21 is all about the new jerusalem okay same context that we're just dealing with there in revelation 3:12 and i john saw oh, this is verse 2 revelation 21 verse 2 and i john saw the holy city new jerusalem okay again same context watch this now Coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And down at the end of verse 9, look at what it says. The, the angel says to John, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And you know who that is, right? Who, who's the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. And who's the wife? It's the church. The church who was espoused or engaged to Christ at salvation, 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, and made herself ready for the marriage at the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19.7 says, and here in Revelation 21 and verse 9, she actually becomes the Lamb's wife, the bride of Christ, likened to a city. New Jerusalem. And now check this out. Once we become his wife, he writes upon us his new name. And what I believe you have here is the intimacy of our relationship with Christ in eternity, where he wants us to call him by a name that is so special and so intimate that he's saving that name until then you know um, Sherry used to call me Mark there was a time when if she referred to me she called me Mark but now she's become my wife and now we dwell together as heirs together of the grace of life and now believe it or not she uses much more enduring and intimate terms to refer to me. You know what I'm saying? You call your wife by her name? You call him by his name? Only when you're mad, right? You know, I don't know how it is in your home, but it's very seldom that my wife calls me Mark. There's there's more endearing terms that she uses. And our Lord writes to the Philadelphians and he says... I've got a very special name that you'll use to refer to me in eternity. A name of endearment and intimacy that I can't even share with you now. I don't don't want to tell you now. But I'm going to write it upon you after I've made you my wife. And you see this, we go through eternity in the New Jerusalem as the Lamb's wife sharing the intimacy of the relationship that he died to provide for us and and you see just now trotter is not a real intimate name but you know what i i wrote i wrote my name on her the day that i took her as my wife didn't i she's no longer sherry love she's sherry trotter See, I wrote upon her, my, my identif- her identification is now with the man in our life. Our identification through all eternity is the man in our life. The man who died on the cross to save us from our sin. And, and listen, if, you're ever, if we will ever be anything other than a layout of sin, man, we've got to get our eyes off of the things that we can see, the, the temporal things, the things that have to do with, with this life. And the need to be lauded and applauded and honored and esteemed and recognized and positioned and all of that junk that Laodiceans put so much value on. We've got to get our eyes off of all of that and start living for the rewards of a different kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and making that the pursuit of our life and the motivation behind everything that we do to be a pillar in God's temple and to have the name of the Father written upon us and the name of our mother, New Jerusalem, the city of God, written upon us and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the new name of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself written upon us. And I promise you, when we're, when we're living for that, when we 're living for that day when, when that day is is our focus, when that day is our motivation, though we live in the layout of seeing church period, I promise you we 'll know a Philadelphian life we 've got to make those the rewards we pursue, and, and that 's what it 's going to take to get us out of the the lukewarmness of Laodicea. Something needs to change concerning the Christ we know, the life we live, the promises we hold, the rewards we pursue, and then one final factor that we'll be able to do very quickly. The fifth one, the reminders we keep before us. The reminders we keep before us and these are the things that he lays out for us in verses 11 and 13 if we're going to live a Philadelphian life in this layout out of sea and age there, there are some reminders that we must constantly keep before us first of all Jesus says don't forget how soon I'm coming don't forget how soon I'm coming verse 11 says behold I come quickly and folks, over the course of the last several years, you know what? The Lord has, has helped us to understand biblically the, what time it is as far as, as He's concerned. And the fact that there is not one single prophecy in this book that re, has been left unfulfilled or that needs to be fulfilled before the Lord Jesus Christ raptures us off of the, the face of this globe. And listen, if we're ever going to be If we're ever going to be something other than a, a lazy, lethargic, lukewarm, lousy layout of seeing, we can't ever lose sight of what time it is, and the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. Romans chapter thirteen and verse eleven says, and that knowing the time, that now, 1997, uh, November 11th, 1997, knowing. The time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh, flesh to fulfill the lust thereof that's what time it is it's time for us to start living like the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back at any moment because that's the way that it is See, so he says now listen don't forget that don't forget what time it is and then he gives us the second reminder that we must keep before us don't let go of what you have don't let go of what you have verse 11 says hold that fast which thou hast and applying that to this church listen, there's some things that the Lord has given us in the last several years that we better be sure to never let out of our grasp first and foremost this book we we, we saw back in in, in verse 8 our Lord commended the church in that Philadelphian period because they kept his word. And you know what Bible they kept? Same one I'm holding in my hands right now. He says, You kept my word. That This is the Bible of the Philadelphian church period. And he says, y- y- You've kept it. And you know what? They handed it to us. Our Philadelphian brothers and sisters handed us this book. And buddy, buddy, We better hold fast what we have. We better hold it fast. And something else the Lord's given us in the last several years is our landmarks. Proverbs 22 and verse 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which the fathers have set. And what we did over the last several years is we've taken the time to trace historically the movement of God through history and the movement of the devil and what it did for us is it provided for us our our landmarks to let us know what we believe and why we believe what we believe and oh buddy we better grab a hold of those landmarks and we better hold them fast hold fast that which thou hast because listen as soon as we lose our landmarks we're going to lose the sound doctrine of this book and what our brothers and sisters historically have died To hand to us, and we—they've handed it to us. We better hold fast to what we have. As soon as we let go of our landmarks, we're going to start making compromises that the layout of seeing church makes. We must constantly be reminded: don't let go of what you have. Hold that fast which thou hast. Reminder number three: don't lose your reward. Don't lose your reward. Verse 11 says, "Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown." And we saw that a couple of months ago when we were looking at the book of Second John, that it's possible to lose rewards that you've earned. Second John chapter one, there's only one, and verse eight says, "Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we may receive a full reward." And the context there lets us know that we run that risk of losing rewards by entertaining false teachers and false teaching. So our Lord says, listen, be careful. Be careful not to lose your reward. Don't let any man take your crown. Because you see, our, that, that crown is what we're going to cast at His feet when we first come into His presence. See, he says, "Listen, don't, don't let anybody take that from you, because that'll be the most incredible experience you've ever experienced in your life to be able to take the crown that he's used to reward you, and to be able to take that and place it at his feet." He says, "Oh, listen, don't, don't, don't lose your reward." And then one final reminder: don't stop listening to my spirit. Don't stop listening to my spirit. Verse thirteen says. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, now, now listen, before you get all you know, geared and ready to go, we got our last blankie filled in and all of that stuff. Now, now listen, this church in the last several years has, has, has come a long way, but wow, I, I think if, if this study over the last eight weeks hasn't shown you anything else, it shows you though we've come a long way we've got a long way to go amen i mean wow you know what we're at the starting gate and i feel like the lord opened the the gate and we're about ready to start to get to get in to this thing but but i i believe if this church has got anything going for it i, I believe it's the fact now go ahead and get yourself settled now okay some of you just, it, 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 as soon as we get that blank done, I'm out of here mentally. Okay, now pull it in. If our church has had anything going for us, it's been the fact that we've listened to the Spirit of God as he's been gracing us into some of these things that he's been, been trying to, to show us through the years. But, but now listen, now is the acid test. Because I believe what the Lord has done for us is he's brought us as far as, as we can go. I mean, he's shown us a lot of truth, and, and, and we're still, there's still a lot of truth to uncover, but I think we've come through most of the earth-shattering things. You I mean, see, now we're, well, now we're to the point to where the Lord is saying, okay, you're, you're in Laodicea, and this is what Laodicea is all about. And this is Philadelphia. Laodicea is a choice. Now, what do you want? Do you want to live like this, lukewarm, sickening? Or do you want to have the, the blessing, the promise of Philadelphia and be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ do in this church what he wants to do in every church, and that is be glorified? He's not glorified in a Laodicean church. He's not even in it. He's, he's standing, knocking at the door. We've got a choice to experience a new Philadelphian kind of life or to continue on in, in Laodicea. And the thing that's going to really make the difference is what kind of ears you have. You see, we've been doing this for eight solid weeks now, and some of you have heard Pastor Mark work his little outline and go through word by word, and you've learned a lot of things for which you are grateful. And then there's others of you. For the last eight weeks, the Spirit of God has been speaking to you. You've been not listening to a message. You've been listening to the Spirit of God as he's been trying to say to this church, you can, you can have something different. You, you, don't, have to, you don't have to live a lay out sea kind of a life. There is something more. I wonder what kind of ears you have. He says, oh, don't stop listening to my spirit. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If you're here this morning and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that the Spirit is saying to you is that you need a Savior. You are separated because of your sin from a holy God, and that holy God came to this planet in the person of Jesus Christ to die to pay the penalty of your sin so that you might be able to have a relationship with God once again. But as long as you remain in your sin, you cannot have that relationship with him. And if you miss the rapture here in the next several years or the next several moments or if you're taken suddenly from this planet through an accident or whatever the case may be, you'll enter eternity without Christ in a place of eternal torment and punishment, the Bible says. But The Spirit of God is moving right now trying to show some of you the reality of this book. And the Spirit of God today wants you to know that you can not have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And, and that's what you need to hear today. And the rest of us in this church, individually in our lives, we're making a choice. Is it going to be Laodicea or Philadelphia? And collectively, we're making a choice. Are we going to be a Laodicean church? Or are we going to be a Philadelphian church, a new Philadelphian church in the Laodicean age? Let's pray.